And we will be, Lord willing, tonight in verses 35 through the end of the chapter, believe it or not. I'm pretty confident we'll get there. But let me read it first and then we'll I'll preach. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus who walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, So, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Lord, we pray that you would give us understanding and insight into the text of your scripture here. Lord, we know that you have given us your Holy Spirit and one of the um, most important things that the Spirit does is lead us into all truth and lead us into understanding. So we ask for your help in that right now and even though as we read through this text, it, there is much of it that is simply, de- simply straightforward um, accounting of what took place, <clears throat> we know that you have not wasted a word in your scripture. And so we ask that as we read this text and we think about it and we're, 
working our way through it, that you would give us that spiritual insight that we need so that we might understand and know you better, Lord. We thank you for your grace and your mercy that you've given to us. Please may that be in our hearts and minds as we hear about you from you, Lord. In your name, amen. The next day, John, he was walking with his disciples. Now, we've went through the lengthy teaching series that we did in John's explanation of who Jesus was. And we saw each one of those seven attributes or seven qualities or seven things that John spoke about Jesus or John was to Jesus in some of those instances. And now we begin to see a transition very early on in the Gospel of John, but it moves from the focus being upon Jesus, pardon me, on John the Baptist to Jesus. And of course, the Gospel of John, his goal in writing to mostly a Gentile audience was that these people would know Jesus better and they would come to understand who Jesus was. It's clear, at least in our text, right, we're looking at today, that John is writing to a group of people who are generally unfamiliar with some of the um, Judy, Judaistic intricacies, I guess, of that religion. Look, for example, at a couple of things here. He says in verse 38, Rabbi, which means teacher, verse 41, Messiah, which means Christ, and again in verse 42, Cephas, which means Peter. So what he's doing here is he's giving to the audience that he's writing to some important bits of information they're going to need to understand. And the assumption is they're not going to understand it otherwise. So this is one of the reasons we know John was writing to a more Gentile audience, although there were certainly a lot of Jews involved as well who were hearing and reading this particular book. But John here gives us a little bit of insight into that, which is one of the reasons why I think this particular mm, section is super important. It seems odd that as he's inspiring scripture, the Holy Spirit has laid it upon the heart of John to give us this interesting little bit where there's two guys standing with John the Baptist and it seems like almost like a play, right? That they're just standing there, you know, kind of by the side and Jesus comes from stage left and kind of walks by and John's able to say, behold, the Lamb of God. And then they go and they follow him kind of thing and they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Come and see. Okay. And then they go off to where Jesus is staying, right? It, that, it reads like that and it, it causes us, I think, to just blast through these kind of passages. But <clears throat> there's important truths here. There's really important truths in the call of Nathaniel coming up and, and the second part of the sermon here. But first of all, this is probably John the Apostle himself with Andrew standing by John the Baptist. We know that they were both followers and Peter as well of John the Baptist. And John really likes to not include himself by name if he can avoid it when he's writing about himself in his own gospel. And so here you have two disciples, only one of them's named, it's Andrew. So we are doing a little bit of assuming, but it's, I think, <clears throat> a healthy assumption that this is John as well. So they're standing with John the Baptist. 
And Jesus walks by. We don't know where he's going, what he's doing, what, where he's about. But John points to him, says, behold the Lamb of God. And we know, based upon what John has already said, that he being one who's preparing the way of the Lord, this is pretty much his ministry in a nutshell. Not just the repent and be baptized, which was a big part of his early ministry to attract the crowds around him. But this is why he was sent to prepare the way of the Lord, to make the path straight so that when the Messiah comes, everyone follows him and not John himself. So we might say this act right here is the culmination of John the Baptist's ministry. This is it. This is its peak. This is its apex. John came to do this. And I read this, and we read on, and we read all about all the stuff that Jesus does and says. We get to John chapter 3, and we read a little bit more about John the Baptist. And he makes the phrase in John chapter 3 that he must decrease so that Jesus can increase. And as I read this particular text here, the thing that jumped out for me, and maybe this is just for me and not anybody else, but you're free to have it as well, is to not despise the days of small beginnings. You know that proverb, don't despise the days of small beginnings? I I think about that because here um, we see John at his very, very, very highest point, and we might say, Well, boy, what kind of ministry is that? All he had to do was say, there's Jesus, and then everybody leaves and follows Jesus. There's nothing greater than a person can do, honestly, than point people to Christ. And and I preached over at Grace Orville this morning, too, and they're looking for a pastor there. and, And one of the things that as I was reading this, and struck me as I was preparing for my sermon over there was that, you know, really the job of the pastor is very John the Baptist-esque, that my ministry is to just point people to Jesus and, and try, almost try to get the attention off of me and to point people to Christ. That he is greater, he is better, he is worth everything that you could possibly have that you could give up in order to follow him. That he really is the chief and best of all beings. And even John the Baptist, who Jesus says was the greatest man ever to have been born among women, we find his ministry being that which is, in a lot of ways, at least as the world sees it, or even some within the church might see it, as being a little disappointing. That all he's doing is pointing people to Jesus. Those are important ministries. It's important truths. It's important things that we do when we point others to Christ. It makes me think, you know, that passage in 1 Corinthians that talks about one day we're going to stand before the Lord and all of our works are going to be put on display before the Lord and it's going to be evident for what they are, whether they're wood, hay, or stubble and burnt up and we are saved but yet through the fire as it were or they're gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, that context is specifically about ministry. 
And I think that there are a lot of people who do their ministry and they look at the actions that they're doing as being those gems that they're getting in their crown or the gold that's going to overlay the crown or whatnot. When I think the real ministry is that we point people to Christ. And honestly, we can do that wherever we're at, whatever we find ourselves doing. Some people, you know, going to work with the kids. Some people are going to be behind the scenes and not want to be up in front and talking to people. But in every single ministry that we do within the context of the church, we have the opportunity, the, the privilege to point others to Christ, to point to Jesus, to point to Jesus, to point to Jesus. So whether we're a John the Baptist or some no-name person that, you know, we find throughout the pages of the New Testament or even in the context of the church, our goal shouldn't be <clears throat> grandeur and ostentatious displays, but rather the fact that, do you know Jesus better? Are you pointed to Jesus? It seems like John is content with that and at least here, this is the very pinnacle of his ministry and everything from here is about to decrease for him, even to the point of death. But still, this ministry is powerful and important. It's so important that he's willing to lose followers over. He does. He looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Now, in leaving John to turn and follow Jesus, um, it, it's, it's a little comical, this um, explanation about what happens here. But they turn and they see Jesus, or Jesus turns, pardon me, and sees them following, and he says, what are you seeking? Now, that in and of itself is interesting, isn't it? Because John says, behold, the Lamb of God, a who, a person, an individual. And yet when Jesus turns towards them, he does like he does so often, is he turns what the people are coming towards them for, and he kind of turns it back upon them. And he does it here not saying, are you following me? Are you looking for me? But instead, what are you looking for? These men have been following John the Baptist for some time. So they are looking for something. And we know throughout the rest of the Gospels that one of the things that comes up regularly is that their faith and their belief and their confidence is in a Messiah to come. I certainly don't have a full-formed soteriology at the point where Jesus asks them this question, but they certainly have an understanding of what it is they're looking for. And they are looking for redemption, salvation in some way, shape, or form. So that's when they say, Rabbi, meaning teacher, where are you staying? It isn't as if he caught them in the moment and they didn't have an answer. Hey, what are you looking for? Uh, where are you staying? What hotel room are you in? You know, kind of thing like that. What, what they are doing, he is saying, he, they've been told that he's the Lamb of God 
to takes away the sins of the world. And they, in following him, Jesus says, what are you seeking? What they're seeking from Jesus here in this moment is a hospitality, a level of hospitality because they're asking, they're kind of inviting themselves over to be with Jesus, to hear from Jesus. Now, in that culture, it's a little different, right? It, you know, me and Nick, if he were after, you know, church to say, hey, I want to come over to your house. Okay. You know, it might be like, okay, let's do, you know, but in this culture, there's a little, there's more social obligation to do that kind of thing. It's, a st- it's just something that's assumed and expected. And so for them to ask Jesus, where are you staying? They're assuming that he's going to be hospitable, bring them in, and then they're going to hear his teaching. So really what they're doing is they're asking about following him. They're asking about coming along with him, hearing the things he's saying, hearing the things that he's teaching. And that's exactly what happens. And we should be, shouldn't be surprised about that. He said, come and you will see. So they came, they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the 10th hour. Now, in, in the commentaries that I read, there was much made about what in the world this 10th hour means. I'm, I'm going to be perfectly honest. I, I don't think that there is a huge spiritual implication to be gleaned from this. I, I kind of think this is where we see the human author bleed through a little bit in, in a good way. Um, I can tell you the date and the time about when I got saved, when I became a Christian, where I was changed and became born again. Now, maybe it had happened a little earlier on and just the emotions struck me at this one point or whatnot, but I know it was on July 1st, 1993. And I know it was after all our work was done and we had finished dinner and we'd cleaned up and we were in the room that we were in upstairs in between the girls and the, the guys' uh, cabins who were on staff there at the camp that I was. And in between our floors, there was this common room with a kitchen, several tables and couches and whatnot for us to all hang out. And there was this round table in what would be the eastern part of the room. And I know there were six chairs that could sit around it. And I know I positioned myself right across from the two people who were sharing me these truths from scripture. And I know that I sat in this one spot because I wanted my back to everybody else in case I started crying, which did in fact happen and I know all of these things and yet if you were to ask me well hey how was your vacation last week I'd go yeah great and I could tell you a few highlights and then you were to ask me what'd you do Tuesday at like four I'd be like hard pressed I'd really have to struggle to remember because it was just even though it was vacation it was still just kind of mundane regular daily things If you'd ask me what I did even the week before, I'm going to be even more hard-pressed to remember because then I was at work and it was really, truly just the daily grind. When you encounter Jesus, life changes. Some people have the glorious privilege. I, I, I have a testimony of sin, salvation after salvation, And frankly, to me, those are a dime a dozen. I've heard them, and yeah, people have gone through hard stuff, and I'm grateful, praise God. I I love when I hear people who have 
grown up with the Lord, who have walked with the Lord since they were wee, wee, wee little, you know, and have a hard time remembering the time where they came to the Lord. But yet when I look in their eyes, I can just see the love of Jesus. And you just know by interacting with them when you start talking about the Lord and talking about scripture, just how much they love Jesus. Because you can't come away from Jesus and not be changed. I really believe that. Might not always be for the positive. Some people are hardened when they come in contact with Jesus and they become harder and harder and harder, but nobody remains the same and nobody is neutral. But here he says 10 o'clock or at the 10th hour, because he's writing to Greeks, it probably actually means 10 in the morning, not 4 p.m., which would have been a Jewish way of accounting for time. But <clears throat> if it was, I don't think it really matters too much. I think the point is John remembers when Jesus took hold of him, when just got his claw, that's not the right way to say it, just, just got into Jesus and he began to change from the inside out. And so he says here, oh, it was about the 10th hour. Then one who heard John speak, follow Jesus, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. And he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah. So he brought him to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, so you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas. One of the things that should, this is what I was talking about with the kids and feeding of the lambs. We love talking about our new things, right? When I got my nice Schuyler Bible, I want to show it off because it's pretty nice, you know? When we get a new phone or new something, we want to show it off and show it to people. And how much more so should it be when we are encountering Christ? Christ has completely and totally changed us. And yet there's something about this culture, and I mean the world. I don't mean just American culture. It's a, it's a world mindset that doesn't want to hear about the things of Christ. And so because we have kind of been predisposed, as it were, to not talk about politics or religion and a polite company kind of thing, then we have subtly, I think, taken it into our minds that, you know, this is something that we don't talk about. It's a more weighty thing to bring up. And so we don't necessarily always bring up Christ when maybe there are certain times where we actually should. In fact, we probably should more often than we do. I'm just as guilty of this as well, but I find so much encouragement for Andrew going and grabbing his brother and saying, we've found the Messiah. Now, granted, these guys were looking for him. They had been following John the Baptist around, hearing about this Lamb of God who is going to take away the sins of the world. And so Peter was, in some ways, already ready to receive that message, but in point of application, there are people around you who are ready to hear that message as well. And so it's good sometimes to sit down and share the gospel with people. Sometimes you have the opportunity to go through the whole thing. Sometimes it'll be come and see and invite them to church. You know they're going to hear the gospel here. 
Sometimes it's that. But I take encouragement in hearing Andrew bringing his brother. But one of the things that I want to point out here is Jesus, when he first talks to Peter, he calls him Cephas, calls him Peter, rock. Simon means sand, right? You probably know this already. It's like the, the Simon is kind of the sand on the seashore, which would have been perfect sense to call him Simon since he was a fisherman. But instead, Jesus calls him Cephas, or which means Peter, which would have under, been understood to be rock. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There, he is displayed by John the Baptist as the priest in his priestly role. Here he is displayed as his prophetic role because you don't get till Matthew chapter 16 before you find that the reason why Peter is called Peter instead of Simon is because of his great profession of faith (coughs) as Jesus being the Messiah that the whole church is founded on. And that some people would look back in that particular event in Matthew 16 and see that as being the place where Peter's the first pope, and that's not it at all. In fact, what is going on there is that Jesus is pointing out that that great confession that he made about Jesus being the Messiah is what the church is built on. And as we go further down in this text, we see that Nathanael calls Jesus the king of Israel. So you see Jesus here as prophet, priest, and king all in this one particular little section. Now, it would have been easy to preach that. Just focus on those three particular points and go that way. And maybe someday we'll come back to it and revisit it and do that. But I want to just point it out in passing because I want to get into this text that is about Philip and Nathaniel and Jesus. So the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Now that's right on the shore, on the northern, western shore of the Sea of Galilee. So if, uh, if this were the Sea of Galilee, this blue part in, on our catechism here, the Sayed is kind of up here, okay? It's on the western part um, above the headwaters that flow into the Sea of Galilee. So it's kind of up here. It, it's a, a, a moderate-sized port there on the Sea of Galilee. <coughs> but these guys, they were from the same town. Certainly seems like they all knew each other. Um, so Philip found uh, Nathaniel after he was called by Jesus to follow him. Now, Nathaniel, just so you know, in the rest of the Synoptic Gospels is probably Bartholomew. Bartholomew doesn't appear in John. Nathaniel doesn't appear except once or twice in the Synoptic Gospels. This is probably the same guy. It's not uncommon, right, for guys to have two names. We just saw Simon and Peter having two names here. So Nathaniel's probably that fellow Bartholomew that you read about in the other Synoptic Gospels. But here, we find pretty much the biggest interaction that we find with Bartholomew for us in all of Scripture. And it's a good one. This is a good guy. Jesus here 
He says, or pardon me, Philip comes to Nathanael and says, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good come out of Nazareth? So Philip said to him, Come and see. Now, right away we read that saying, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? As if we're saying, Can anything good come from Orville? Right? And, and we just, you know, you know well, I know. I, I, there might have been an element to that. It certainly seems like in some of the history of the day that Nazareth had kind of a shady, uh, some goings on. And, um, but I'm not 100% convinced that's exactly what Nathaniel was getting at. I think more what he was getting at was, can the Messiah come from Nazareth? And the reason I think that is because he, he clearly knows scripture, I think, based on what Jesus brings up to him. And he probably would have remembered that the Messiah comes from Bethlehem, at least according to the prophet Micah. Now, we do know that uh, he went to Nazareth and it's, there's that prophecy he will be called a Nazarene. But here he says, can anything good? I think he's saying, can the Messiah actually come from the town of Nazareth? And scratching his head there. I don't know if he knew Jesus at this point. He brings up the son of Joseph, which implies that maybe there is some kind of um, knowledge and understanding there. But to be perfectly honest, we don't know. So he says, come and see, which is a great way to answer that question. Don't argue, just come and see. (laughs) So Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him. And said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. It's interesting. I can't think of a single time and a place where I've greeted somebody with some similar kind of greeting. Ah, Fred, a man who knows no deceit. You know, it's just not the way we speak. And it sounds like a Jesus-y way of speaking. But I think what Jesus is doing here, especially based upon what he's about to do in terms of the um, angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man, is he's referring back to Jacob. And Jacob was one of the most important patriarchs for the nation of Israel, just underneath Abraham and Moses, pretty much. Jacob was one of the big three, we might call them, because out of Jacob came the 12 tribes, right? Well, Jacob, he might have been the father of the 12 tribes, but he was by no means a perfectly righteous fellow. In fact, dude was shady all the time. He would do a lot of things in order to get his own ways met and to accomplish his particular ends. We see it not only with Laban and all of the interactions that he had with his father-in-law, but we see it with his brother Esau earlier on in his life, which actually takes place, incidentally, in Genesis chapter 27, the chapter right before the angels ascending and descending in chapter 28. So I think what Jesus is doing here is he, because he knows the quality and character of this particular individual, 
He's bringing up something he would have been clearly familiar with. And he's pointing out that he's an Israelite in whom there is no deceit because he's about to make this massive prophetic connection between himself and Jacob. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, I am greater than Jacob. That's a bold claim. And so he's setting Nathaniel up here for this big, bold claim. And Nathaniel's already all in before Jesus even gets there, it seems like. But what he's doing is he's pointing out he's an Israelite in whom there was no deceit, unlike your patriarch Jacob, whom there was a great amount of deceit in. Nathaniel says, how do you know me? How do you know my character? How do you know who I am? And Jesus said, before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, what was he doing under the fig tree? All the commentaries I read said he was doing his devotions under the fig tree. But it doesn't say that. Maybe he was. I don't know what he was doing under the fig tree. Not something deceptive, apparently. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have said that. But he was there, and whatever he was doing, whether he was meditating or praying, or whether he was just enjoying the shade when Philip came up, whatever he was doing, um, he... Jesus knew he was under there. And so Nathanael, Bartholomew, answered him and said, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. That's a big leap to, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Can the Messiah come out of Nazareth? To he's ready to make him king (laughs) and put a crown on his head. Put a crown on his head. But that's often the the case what we find with, with Jesus. Um, when people, you know, people are, they, they're pendulums. They swing one direction and then another. And um, it's true with Jesus. They'll have, you know, one minute they're ready to put a crown on his head and the next minute they're ready to cast him off the cliff, you know, because of just certain things that he said. And here Nathaniel's not sure about him, but right away, once Jesus says something that was clearly unexpected and revealed his character and revealed that Jesus knew more about him than he ought to, he's ready to make him king. And he's ready <coughs> to go all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 7 and that Davidic covenant and say, hey, this is speaking of you. Or Psalm 2. Let me just read you a little portion out of Psalm 2. And you guys probably know this already. But it says, who sits in the heavens and he laughs and he, the Lord holds all the nations in derision. He'll speak in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. As for me, I have set my king on Zion on the holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And that was the hope of Israel, was that a king would rise up who was going to dash the enemies of Israel into pieces. And I think him right here, he and Nathaniel's ready to do that. He's at this point all, pardon me, all in. But Jesus understands this about us and our character. And we are prone to misunderstand and to 
have these big pendulum swings. And so he, rather than just receiving that, draws attention to who he is, even being greater than Jacob. He says, verse 50, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. He said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Indeed, he'll see greater things than just that saying that Jesus uttered to him. (coughs) He'll (coughs) not only see greater things, but he himself will have the ability and be able to perform greater miracles than even this prophetic word that Jesus speaks here. But Jesus goes even further than that, and he says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened. In the Old Testament, there are a handful of times, and we might think it happened all the time, but remember, the Old Testament was written over thousands of years, and so in reality, there were only a few times, but where the heavens were literally opened. And Elijah was caught up into the heavens. Or Isaiah walked into the temple and instead of walking into the temple, he walked into the throne room of God in heaven kind of thing, right? Or Daniel chapter 7, which we'll get to when we get to John chapter 12 specifically, where the heavens are opened and Daniel sees the Lord God most high on his throne and he sees the Ancient of Days or he sees Jesus Christ there sitting next to the right hand of God Almighty there on his throne. So this seeing heaven opened was a a Jewish anticipation. It was part of their eschatological framework that they believed when the Messiah would come that the heavens would be opened like was to the prophets of old and these prophets of old would be there along with them but then they would gain access into the very opened heaven that they saw before them. And that was, their, that was a huge eschatological anticipation for the Jew. In fact, so much so that we see when Jesus gives his revelation to John, we see both in chapter 4 when the heavens are opened and you see there into the throne room of God, you see things very similar to what the prophets saw. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, they're contained in that throne room. But then the ultimate opening of heaven you actually find in chapter 19 when Jesus gives us his second coming and tells us what that's going to be like and heaven is opened there and rather there being a big ushering in of certain peoples namely the Jews there is a coming down of Christ along with all of his armies down to the earth so this heaven open he tells Nathaniel, you're going to see the heavens opened. Now this heaven opened that he's specifically referring to might be the very first time that that event actually took place in scripture, all the way back in Genesis chapter 28. And you can read that for homework later on this afternoon if you would like to. But in Genesis 28, you'll remember the rascal Jacob had hoodwinked his brother with the hairy arm bit and the hairy neck bit, right? And he stole his brother Esau's birthright. 
and Esau was hot. He was mad. He wanted to kill his brother. So Jacob had to skedaddle out of there, and he ran for all day as, all, as far as he could possibly get to. And when he collapsed there that night upon escaping from Esau, he grabbed the first thing he could for a pillow, and it was a rock. And he just dropped on the rock and fell asleep. And there, as he was sleeping, he had this vision of heaven being opened and a staircase or a ladder descending from heaven and angels coming down and then ascending back up. And a voice comes out of heaven down to Jacob as he's sleeping and he gives him this great blessing, a blessing very similar to the one he gave to his father Abraham and I, or pardon me, Isaac and then Abraham before him, that he would make of him a great nation that multitudes would come from him. Jesus here is saying and suggesting, not only is he the staircase upon which the angels were ascending and descending, but he is claiming to be the very God who spoke from heaven there as well. Now, this is absolutely audacious for him to say if it weren't true. (laughs) This is, the, the, uh, this is one of the greatest claims to deity that we can find Jesus uttering in all of the pages of Scripture. He is claiming to be the very mediator between men and between God himself. He is the bridge between heaven. No one comes to the Father except through him. He is claiming to be the only means by which anyone can have access to heaven when he says this here. Now before this, certainly doesn't seem like anyone took that staircase as being some kind of symbol for God himself. But Jesus here, he gives us this messianic interpretation of the Old Testament and says, no, it's speaking of himself. And if angels are going to come and angels are going to go, then they're going to come at his request and his um, needing and wanting and doing. Anytime a person or any individual is going to have access to God, it can only come through the Messiah himself. He is saying that I, as the Son of Man, am the only bridge between this world and the heavenly kingdoms to come. So he is prophet, priest, and king, and those things are absolutely true of Jesus. But Jesus wants to point us to something one step greater, and that he is God Almighty. And that as God Almighty, he is the only one, the only means by which anyone has access to God. Now guarantee you, Nathaniel, sitting under that fig tree, was not expecting this to come. But that's what Jesus does. He blows up our expectations. He's greater than anything that we could come and offer to him. Oh, I'm king? I'm even greater than king. I'm the very Messiah, the mediator between God and men. So when we come to Jesus and we offer our worship and we offer our praise, which undoubtedly I believe that's what Nathaniel was certainly doing there, along with the other disciples, Jesus is even greater than all of that. This is why it's the privilege to bring people to Jesus. Because we bring people to the chief, 
the best, the greatest of all possible things that they could ever come to in this life, that he will exceed all anticipation and he will crush every expectation that everybody has of God. We want to bring people to Christ that they might bow their knee now. I want to bring you to Christ that you might be more conformed to his image. We pray and we hope that we would be there with him on that last day when heavens are opened and we are literally before the throne of grace, worshiping and casting our crowns before him, praising God Almighty for the work that he has done in us and saving us all for his glory through the person of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father God, we praise you for the salvation that we have that is just absolutely radical. It, it, it's beyond understanding. And I, I, I read a text like this and I, I study it and I think about it and Lord, it just causes me to just worship you more and more. And for all of us here, Lord, we pray that we would similarly be encouraged by the words you gave to Nathaniel as he is brought not just to the place where he acknowledges your king, which we do as well, but even further than that, to the very throne room of God itself, the very throne room where we one day will call home. Thank you for your amazing grace. We love you and we thank you in your name. Amen.